All right, here we are. This is the Q-Man, back from a little bit of a break after tearing off like six episodes. I think I hurt myself. <laughs> this podcast, detailing the end of the world and the end of the global economy as we know it, brought to you by my kind friends over at JM Bullion. Folks, what better way to deal with the end of the world than stacking gold and silver bullion, and I know the place to do it, my kind friends over at JM Bullion. They have been longtime supporters of this podcast and QTR podcast listeners have their own rep at JM Bullion, the lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. If you are looking to shoot an email, if you don't want to deal with uh, dealing with the website, if you have questions, if you want personalized service, but JM Bullion's been in business for over uh, a decade now. They've done over $7 billion in sales. They are my trusted gold and silver partner. They ship discreetly. They turn around my orders quickly. They always have a lot of inventory in stock, and their prices are always competitive. I love JM Bullion. If you were thinking about stocking gold and silver, and I can't imagine why the fuck you wouldn't be right now with everything that's going on in the world, please make your way over to JM Bullion. The link is in my podcast description or shoot Laura an email, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. Tell her you are a QTR podcast listener. She will make sure you get that you get taken care of. All right, just blowing the dust off here a little bit. This podcast also brought to you by my kind friends over at Rebel Capitalist Pro, where my brother George Gammon has teamed up with Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, and Brent Johnson to help you figure out ways to preserve your wealth in a world of out-of-control central banks, Rebel Capitalist Pro is one of my absolute favorites. Shoot George a message or anybody over there. Let them know that I sent you. If you want to do a free trial or whatever, they will work with you if they know you came from the QTR podcast. They have incredible live Q&A sessions. You get access to all of the premium content from people like Brent Johnson and Lynn Alden, two of my favorites to follow on Macro. And I know Larry's one of Larry's favorites. We'll be talking to Larry today as well. Uh, because I know he just included some Lynn Alden stuff in his last uh, hedge fund letter, so I know he uh, listens to Lynn's stuff as well. Their forums are an invaluable resource. They do great model portfolios. Really, no better way to help gain perspective on how the macroeconomic machine works for real with far less dick and fart jokes than I make and far more content than checking out Rebel Capitalist Pro. Absolutely love those guys. That link is in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my kind friends over at Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. My dear friend Sang Lucci, what's going on, my brother? Had a little bit of a rough month last month. I saw he posted some losses, but then just saw yesterday or a couple days ago he posted some some gains. But I reached out to him just to show him some love. Uh, Sang Lucci, one of the most transparent traders and best traders in the game. Just a great follow on social media if you're looking for content. But also the Steam Room, which is really their flagship product, is outstanding. It is Really, the Steam Room was one of the first pieces of software that helped track out-of-the-ordinary uh, out options action, which many people now look at to help, you know, pretty much the options market is the tail that wags the stock market at this point. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that on today's podcast, but the Steam Room is a great place for tracking that flow, and with Wall Street Jesus and Sanglucci, who have been doing it longer than anybody has. I mean, 10 years ago when I came on the scene, these guys were already checking out unusual options activity. Now everybody does it, but nobody does it better than these guys. So shoot them a play. I'm sure they will give you a free trial, whatever you want. Tell them the QTR podcast sent you. 
uh, head on over to the Sanglucci Steam Room. All three of those links are in my podcast description. Also, in the world of Sanglucci, I want you to know that uh, they have launched a new free live stream over on Lucci's YouTube channel. So this is free. You don't even need to pay for it. Uh, every morning, 9 to 10 o'clock in the morning, him and his partners in crime, Wall Street Jesus, Ron Freeman, they trade live uh, in front of your eyes. So check them out over on YouTube. Go to the live section of Sang Lucci's YouTube channel to check it out. Uh, I love watching them trade. Uh, and I, I come for the trading, but I stay for the banter. I've watched them over the last month. And uh, it's funny, 10 years of knowing Lucci, his sense of humor still doesn't get old, and I still enjoy watching him trade. So check out his free live stream over on the Sang Lucci YouTube channel as well. Okay, let's get started. All right, have with me my good friend, Larry Lepard. Nobody that I would rather help me try to sort everything out with. And I mean everything. I haven't done a podcast in weeks. So much has developed, actually, since the last time I've done a podcast. Um, just Not just geopolitically, but with the global economy. Uh, Larry released his most recent hedge fund letter last week, too. Uh, it's on my blog, Fringe Finance. That link's in the podcast description if you want to check it out. Um, Larry is, runs the EMA Garp Fund. He is uh, one of the most respected people uh, in my household when it comes to people that I like to take their opinions to heart when it comes to macro. Uh, probably a little bit of an echo chamber for me as well because we see eye to eye on a lot of things. But uh, I love hearing his perspective and happy to have you on, brother. How are you? Well, it's, it's great to be back, Chris. It's really an honor. I love all the stuff you're doing. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, we are an echo chamber. But, you know, it's it's pretty hard to watch what's going on in the world and not come to the conclusions that we're coming to. I mean, I, you know, the, the, the FUD out there and, the you know, the narrative from the mainstream is just it's ridiculous. <laughs> well, and there hasn't so been it, there hasn't been anything over the last like couple years since we've been talking. And especially, you know, since we did that marathon podcast with Andy Sheckman just talking about the state of the world, there hasn't really been anything that's disproven what we think. I think for us, it just comes down to timing again. Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's look, I mean, I would I, I think I said it would have happened by now and it hasn't. So I've been wrong about that. Um, and, and to be frank, I thought Silicon Valley, I thought it might have been all over right then. Right. I thought we were going back into it then. And of course, we didn't. So. Um, you know, the other side has a lot of tools and a lot of levers they can pull and, you know, they'll pull them. But, um, you know, as, as Luke Roman likes to say, you know, compound interest is undefeated. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, they got a real problem on their hands. Well, let's start with let's let's start with what's going on uh, over in the Middle East in Israel. And oh, uh I just want to get your take. I mean, really, because since the last time I've done a podcast, uh, you know, there was this attack on Israel by Hamas, who, you know, came in, killed, tortured Israelis. And now you have uh, what can only be described as an unfolding shit show uh, right now, because I was just reading today. Turkey uh, came out, I think, yesterday and made a statement basically I think uh, President Erdogan canceled his trip to Israel that he was supposed to take and made mm. some type of statement that, uh, you know, they back Hamas. They see him as a liberation group. There's a, you know, in addition to the friends that I uh, have that have family and friends in Israel, some of whom have friends of friends that have been killed, unfortunately, sadly. In addition to that, and in addition to what's unfolding over there, 
there's this crazy woke political negative feedback loop kind of unfolding over here in the West where, um, you know, after these attacks, the left, they don't know what the hell they want. They they were out supporting Palestine and calling, uh, you know, Israel colonizers and and genocidal maniacs before Israel even retaliated. And so (laughs) let me get your take on all of it, starting from what the... uh, economic implications and geopolitical implications are going to be and, and moving into, uh, yeah, I, I want to stick with the economic implications because the, you know, that, that, that whole scene, that whole shit show, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm decidedly neutral here. Um, I'm, I'm an anti-war kind of guy. Um, I backed Ron Paul, um, and I can, I can see both sides of the coin. Um, you know, obviously the Hamas actions are atrocious terrible, et cetera. Um, you know, having said that, the Palestinians one day had a state and 80% of it's been taken away over time. So um, I'm not it, suggesting it, either it, one this is, is right what or I wrong. don't get, though. You know, like, this, this, you know, the, you can say that, but everything was fine one day, and the next day 1,300 people had been murdered. And so, you know, kind of going back, look, and I'm anti-war too, and I supported Ron Paul as well. You know, what I don't get is I don't get how people can see the actions of Hamas and then kind of revert back to this, well, you know, they may have had a reason. I could see their reason for doing it. No, I agree. I agree. They're not not proportionate. It's not a proportionate response. I, I agree with that. I just think it's very dangerous to enter into, um, you know, a, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's two disputing parties and they want to poke each other's eyes out. And as Gandhi said, you know, uh, an eye for an eye and we're all blind. Um, you know, and I, I'm not going to, you know, it's, it's like two fighting children. I'm not going to sit here and, and weigh in on, you know, one, ch- one set of children is, is, you know, morally, um, you know, better or worse, whatever. Cause I think, I think on both sides have been, you know, bad things done and they're at war. And, and, you know, to me, it's the whole area is just like touching the third rail. So I don't go there. I think that what I do do is I look at it analytically and I say that, um, you know, basically uh, this is not good, you know, in a, in a, in the context of um, what it means for the U S and what it means for our spending, what it means for the economies, what it means for the dollar and everything else. I mean, you know, a, a broader war. Um, I mean, the U S is already broke. Right. Right. Uh, and, <laughs> and here's Biden, you know, saying we've got to send a hundred billion dollars to a combination of the Ukraine and Israel. And we've got to send $50 billion, you know, or spend 50 billion domestically, uh, and so on and so forth. And, you know, th- this is money we just don't have. And so the only way to, uh, you know, get that money is to print it. Um, and, um, you know, they're not printing it right now because, you know, um, Powell is trying to channel his inner Volcker and run that playbook of high interest rates and, and, you know, get inflation under control. And of course it's not working because of the doom loop, which is described in my letter, but you know, it's, um, it's a mess. And, and, uh, you know, the, the war is the war, whatever the war ends up being, however the war unfolds, unless it really simmers down and stops, which thus far, I haven't seen any indication that's happening. We're hearing about attacks you know, out of Syria, we're hearing about attacks out of Iran on, on troops over there, on our bases over there, which, of course, begs the question of why do we have bases in those countries? But that's a different question. 
um, you know, all of these things are going to lead to additional spending, additional casualties, additional death. And, you know, I, I find it ominous that, you know, we sent two carrier groups into the Mediterranean. The Chinese have sent a bunch of warships into the Mediterranean. So, you, you know, you've just you've got a very, very volatile situation where, you know, you could have a Gulf of Tonkin like incident or whatever it might be. You know, hey, they hit me first. We got to hit them back. You know, OK. I mean, you know, you've got Putin saying that his jets are armed with hypersonic missiles that could sink an aircraft carrier. Well, that wouldn't be good. And, you know, we're, we're, we're on the edge of what could become a real shit show. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and, and monitor, and of course then the mon and, and look, I care about that cause I care about safety and the health of the world and people not dying and, you know, not having a world war. But, um, it, it's, it strikes me that to some extent a world war would be very convenient for all of the people who've run us into this monetary cul-de-sac where we're, we're stuck and we've got too much debt. And so, you know, just as the COVID, um, thing was a very convenient way for them to print a shitload of money and debase the currency, you know, if this thing escalates, it's going to be the same thing in my view. It's going to be a, uh, a very high probability that we're going to print a shitload of money. Um, and, and the implications for, you know, investors are that they've got to find and hold assets that can't be printed. I think, so what, I think what bothers me the most is the sums of money that are being thrown around Oh yeah, as though as though they're nothing, right? So right. Biden has gone for big air here over the last couple of weeks, and said he wants a hundred billion, right? We'll just round right. up to you know the the aid for Ukraine has been in these little piecemeal, you know, every couple of days we get another headline, another six hundred million, another two billion, another three billion, another yeah. two hundred oh, yeah. million, you know, and now here we are, and he's asking for a hundred billion dollars between Israel and Ukraine and of course I think you know some of that six billion or something will go to our southern border I had to tuck that in there to try to get some congressional support but I'm I'm alarmed by this for two reasons one is that the acceleration of the spending that we're doing fighting these foreign wars and basically just you know, exporting dollars and just spending money we don't have seems to be going parabolic. And B, it's also disturbing because such a vast sum of money can't possibly be looked after. And so, you know, when you send $10 billion to Ukraine, it's like sending it to a charity. How much is going to go to administrative, you know, SG&A, right? And how much of it is going to go to actually fighting the war? And we have no idea on that. And that that would be less disturbing if the government didn't didn't have its hands in the pockets of the taxpayer the way that it does you know where it's scrutinizing every $600 transaction on Venmo right and right. i just saw yeah. an article yesterday <laughs> that that the IRS you know raked in another 180 million dollars in tax revenue from wealthy people and that's all good and well but that 180 million in tax receipts that they're out getting through, you know, brute force of the IRS is pales in comparison. That is that is that is 18 percent of one billion. And this guy's yes. talking about a hundred billion. OK, yes. so that, that's I mean, just just to give it some context uh, while you were you know speaking, I just I Googled the Reagan budget deficits. And because I remember I was starting out in business in 83 and 84 as the beginning early in my career, relatively early in my career. And um, people went crazy over how Reagan started deficit spending. 
And uh, so in 1983, the federal budget deficit was $55 billion. That's a whole year, calendar year 1983, $55 billion. This past year, as you know, it was $2 trillion. And we're talking about, you know, Biden saying, okay, 100 bill, no problem. So it gives you a sense of just how far down the road we are in terms of excessive spending. And, and by the way, you know, we, we're going to have to start thinking about what comes after, you know, uh, a trillion. I mean, I think it's a quadrillion. And uh, because, you know, at the, at the stage, at the rate that we're going, it is becoming exponential. And that's, of course, why I believe that this monetary system is doomed. It's just, there's, it's absolutely doomed. I'm, I hate to say that, and I'm not trying to be a doom monger or fear monger. I just think it's basic math. Um, you know, looking at it, any engineer can look at it and say, what's going to happen here? And you, you compound something enough, and, and that's what happens. Well, what, you know, other, like, what other conclusion are we supposed to draw when right. they're running these huge deficits and they're not even they are not even telegraphing any type of reason or slowdown in spending. They are moving. The gate is swinging in the other direction. Spending yes. is accelerating. We are taking yes. on more liability in other wars. Right. So, like, yes. what, what other conclusion is should anybody be drawing? Yeah, I mean, it's. There, there appears to be zero fiscal restraint in Washington, D.C. I mean, as you saw, they kicked the debt ceiling into January of 2025 so they could get through next year's election. And, um, you know, they, the, they're, they're, you know they, they appear to be behaving like there are no consequences to this. And yet what the 10-year bond market is saying is, oh, yeah, there are consequences, all right. You know, we're not going to, we're not, I mean, people aren't buying it. And interest rates are going to go higher. And that that's what leads to the doom loop, you know, just a continual and, and, and then eventually they're going to be forced into some form of yield curve control because that's what they had to do after World War Two when GDP was 130 percent or that was 130 percent of GDP. And so you can just see that's coming and yield curve control is de facto printing money. And so, you know, I mean, I mean, you think six dollars, seven dollar gasoline prices in California bad now. I mean, wait until we've got fifteen dollars nationwide. Because that's coming. We just don't know. We don't know exactly how long it's going to take, but we're going to get there if this continues. Well, Ackman was out a couple of days ago and said he covered his bond short. So, <laughs> what are you seeing that he is not seeing, or what? What's yeah. his? What's his well, argument that 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 you don't have? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, first of all, you know, I mean, talk about market manipulation. I mean, there there are SEC rules against you know hedge fund guys doing what he just did. But setting all that, you know, and he's just a piece of shit. But setting all that aside. Um, you know, look, the the bond is. I mean, well, he could, very good what, What's wrong with coming out and saying he covered his short? I think I think it would be viewed as market manipulation. I, think I don't that, think so. Uh, I think that's just. Oh, you, I, oh think, I think I think it would be. I, I think when you manage a large sum of money and you're SEC regulated, you're not supposed to be telling people what you're doing or telegraphing what you're doing. I think you can. I think you can generally speak about what you see, but I think to be as specific as he was on the timing that he was. That would be viewed as a manipulative event, but I could be wrong on that. I just I, I read something up from a lawyer who talked about it and, and made that argument. But, but if anyway. he if he covered his short and didn't go long and net net had no position and then just disclosed that, what what does he stand to gain from that? That's a fair point. That's a very fair point. Um, one, we don't know that he didn't go long. Okay. Right, but but let's just assume he let's just assume he did. If it's true that he if it's true that he didn't go long, you're right. Nothing to gain. Right. Um, except so not perhaps, manipulation. Ex, ex, well, no, but hang on. We, one, we don't know that he didn't go long. Okay. Two, we don't know who the phone call to him came from to ask him to publicly do that. 
and he probably gained favor with somebody somewhere in the government agencies from what I could you know, assume and, and would assume um, because that's the way these guys play this game. But back to you know his the timing on it. But there, there's um, no right. But I just want to I just want to get clear on this. There's no evidence that that was market manipulation, and there's no evidence that he received a, co- a phone call from anybody to put that out. No, there's not. Okay. Not at all. There's no. It may have no happened. Evidence. You might be right. There's, there's but, no evidence. But this is a hunch, just, right? Yeah, it's just a hunch. But I just I, you know it's. Look, there, you know, there are people in this game that play the game dirty, and I think he's one of them. But setting that aside, I think he, um, I think he sees that the bond is very overextended, and he's playing for a bounce, assuming the economy is going to slow down. And I don't disagree that that could happen. I mean, some of the very good technical analysts that I follow uh, suggest that you know the bond, the long bond, which you know the interest rate almost got to five percent. In fact, it did briefly get over five percent on the ten-year. Um, you know, that could drop back into the low fours for a little while before turning and then going much higher. I think over the longer, longer term, interest rates are going much, much higher. And the reason I think that is I think inflation is not subdued. And I think that people are going to lose confidence in these bonds and they're not going to want to hold them. So um, how how long you know, do you think that takes to play out? Uh, probably within the next six months to a year. I mean, I would expect that sometime within the next six months, we see a long bond, you know, five, six, seven percent. And others who were relatively smart, who I respect, have said the same thing. Yeah, I think um, Jamie Dimon even said that, didn't he? Yeah, I think he might have. Yeah, I think he might have. I, I think I saw Druckenmiller say something similar. Uh, and Dalio might have said something similar. I can't recall exactly who, where I read it. But I, there are people, maybe it was Paul Singer, but there are people who I know share that view. And, and the reasoning is it's, it's really pretty straightforward. I mean, you know, Uncle Sam is a bad credit risk. Um, and, you know, we haven't seen we haven't seen the, the, the credibility of the dollar and um, the bond be questioned in this way since the seventies. Um, and the, the solution back then, as you know, was Volcker to come in and jack up rates, create huge positive real interest rates that got everything back under control. But the difference is that then you had debt to GDP of 30% and now it's 130%. Right. And the money and, and the money is, you know, out of control now. You know the money Absolutely. was uh, the money was sounder in the '70s as well. So there's two big you know trap doors there. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it, yeah, that's right. Um, so it's you know it's it's problematic. So to me, I mean, what's going on in the Middle East and the war front is to me, you know, emblematic of, of a fourth turning, which you and I've discussed many times. I know you share my views on this. And it's just things are breaking down, um, and you know we we have to kind of learn to expect the unexpected. I mean, I think the other interesting point, and I know you've talked about this a lot in your, in your blog and you, you discuss it, it's just the stock market to me is still in a bubble. I mean, it, it you know, in general, um, I think ZERP, which occurred, you know, from 08 to, you know, 20, well, on and off, but basically 08 to 15, and then they restarted it in 18, 19, and restarted again at COVID. I mean, ZERP um, has massively distorted, you know, the bond market and the stock market. Right. And, you know, I think the stock market hit an all-time peak that will be last for quite a while, unless we have a crack-up boom, which we could, by the way, if we really go Venezuela. But unless we have a crack-up boom, I think the stock market hit an all-time peak in December of 2021. As you know, it corrected very severely in 2022. This year it's bounced back nicely. And, um, you know, if you actually go study the 1929 crash, same thing happened. You had the initial crash. And then it bounced back quite a bit. This bounce back's been further, but um, and then the real problems began, and it lost eighty percent of its value in the early nineteen thirties. And 
And I, I actually think that's what we've got coming in the stock market because, you know, higher interest rates, the stock market does not like higher interest rates. I mean, it was, it's the value of the stock market was fueled by all that free money. And so now you've got, and, and by, you know, we were at, this is my letter as well. You've got peak profit margins, you've got peak PE ratios, you've got peak everything. And, you know, now you've got labor wants their share because they've been screwed by inflation and they're going to get it. And, you know, so margins are going to go down and then PEs are going to contract because, you know, look, I mean, I don't like the government bond market, but, you know, wealthy people who have cash today can get 5% right. in one month, three months, six months, one year bonds. I mean, I don't happen to have a lot of cash because I'm invested in sound money. But um, if I did, you know, holding a holding a one year bond for five percent, that's not a bad deal. No, I mean, not I, if you got a you know, net worth of two hundred million dollars, you know. Exactly. If interest rates go up in the future, fine. In one year you're out of it and off you go. Holding a ten year bond for five percent, that's a bad deal. Because right. I think interest rates go higher. So, you know, but you can get paid on these short these short maturity bonds and, and some people many people are. So and that's of course how the government's financing itself. But it's going to, you know, those costs are going to continue to go up and those deficits are going to continue to get larger. And, you know, eventually, um, you know, it's, it's as Groman says, I mean, we're starting to look like a third world country. And that's, that's really the biggest development that's taken place. And that's where, and you can see it in sound money. I mean, you know, real interest rates have gone up 500 basis points in the last year, 18 months. And, and yet gold is still very close to its all time high. And Bitcoin has, has done quite a quite a nice job of recovering out of the hole that it dug after FTX blew up. So um, I think people are starting to figure out that this issue of the government being as out of control as it is on its spending is going to filter its way through all of these financial assets. And, um, you know, the only way they can prevent it, the only way the stock market can be you know saved and or the bond market can be saved. And, and by the way, arguably, it wouldn't even save the bond market long term is by by reversing their policies and by you know taking interest rates down and you know unwinding qt and then starting again with qe um and and this is all again this is in my letter this is all very nicely detailed in a chart that uh, lynn alden um, devised which kind of shows you the growth of debt as against the underlying growth of the base money and you know when the two get too far apart the base money supply has to grow or else the entire thing collapses. I mean, it's, it's you know, the, the phrases for that are you can't taper a Ponzi or, right. you know, inflate or die. And yeah. so even though they're not printing right now, not, you know, well, with BTFP they were, but, but in, in, in general they're not printing right now and you've got, a, you've got M2 going down slightly, 3% year on year. Um, that cannot continue. Or if it does continue, we're going to have something that looks like the depression because the, 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 the financial market values that are out there were pumped up by this free money and they cannot be sustained at this level now that money is no longer free. Yeah, that's, you're, that's you're, kind of the bottom line. You're right? absolutely right. And what that boils down to is that mathematically there is no easy way out of the situation. We're that's in. correct. And every day that goes by and the stock market continues to hold up, oh, it ticked down 1% today. Oh, okay. You know, oh, yields ticked a little bit higher today. Oh, okay. Whatever. Every day that goes by is just one day closer to some type of big problem. That is going to come in the form of God knows where it's going to start. Something innocuous. Who knows? The, you know, commercial real estate, whatever. The bond market, you know, trying to 
take control of the situation. It just doesn't matter. It's just, you know, you're talking about the base money supply needing to expand. And, and to put it into layman's terms for, you know, people that aren't even in the world of finance is that you can't rush rates up as high as we did as quickly as we did and start to contract the money supply and just shut off 20 years of easy money without there being extreme consequences. And just because they haven't happened yet doesn't mean that they aren't going to happen. It, it exactly. is, and, in, in my opinion, and, it's a mathematical certainty that we are going to have agree. some type of crash. I completely agree. And and by the way, you say they haven't happened yet, and you're kind of right, but they kind of did happen because Silicon Valley Bank happened. I but mean, that, that was, was another a, Band-Aid, right? So they put another well, Band-Aid right. on that, which you that's there, exactly which means... right. they, they fixed it. But but that was, you know, they, they were scared. I mean, that was, you know, Janet Yellen reversed herself four or five times about whether she was going to guarantee all the bank deposits because they were actually really concerned about a nationwide bank run. I know. And, and, they, and they probably would have had one. And by the way, you had Ackman and all those other people saying they better bail this shit out. Yep. You know, and, and, and they and of course, one of the things they did, I find it so interesting is they went and they broke the law. I mean, you know, basically Dodd-Frank, which were the reforms from 2007 and 2008, were black letter law that said if the banks get in trouble in the future, the depositors are going to take a hit. Well, guess what? Silicon Valley Bank got in trouble. Silicon Valley Bank's depositors should have taken a hit, but they didn't because they changed the law to protect the wealthy depositors. Correct. You know, Ackman went crying to the Fed. All the Silicon Valley VCs went crying to the Fed. They got them all scared as shit that the entire banking system was going to collapse. And what did the Fed do? It sent the bank's money under BTFP. And things were so, really starting to spread. They, it was oh, yeah. starting to get a oh, little yeah. hairy because then people started tossing around names like Charles Schwab, which oh, is like, okay, right. you know, Silicon Valley Bank is one thing. It's a giant pile of, you know, uh, VC shit, money losing crap. Uh, you know, that took inordinate risks trying to buy treasuries when yields were at 1% and had a portfolio of companies that were not cash generative. It was, uh, it was a very, very speculative bank. And so it should have paid the consequences, like you're saying. Its depositors should have paid the consequences for the risk that they took. Now, that's one thing. But then, like, there was this cycle of not only that bank, collapsing but then you had people pulling their money out of mm -hmm. banks and you also had people selling bank stocks at mm -hmm. the same time so you had this great collapse in in liquidity and sentiment and equity value all at the same time while you know while these portfolios of treasuries are obviously getting smacked to you know banks that held mm -hmm. treasuries and yep. it was starting to bleed over into, I just exactly. remember Schwab was being tossed around. That was the name. Oh, Charles yep. Schwab could be nice. And if Schwab goes, all of a sudden now it's a conversation about much bigger names that are not much more mainstream, risk-adverse names than Silicon Valley Bank for certain. And then you have a huge problem. So they managed to plug the leak in the dam there, Larry, for, you know, however long now. But, you know, that generally begets bigger consequences down the road well, as, as we know right that's very right and i mean to me and I'm, i think you were in the business at this time chris i remember like it was yesterday you know um the, there were two bear stearns funds that were in the cds business that blew up in the summer of 07 and that was like a shot across the bow and i was like okay that's not good and then in march <laughs> of 08 you know bear stearns failed 
and I was short Bear Stearns, and they, you know, they forced him into a merger at $2, which subsequently got, re, you know, revised. But anyway, the long story on that was, you know, and these were these were the similar kinds of shots over the bow where people were like, oh, something's wrong here. Right. But no, 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 it's okay. And they put it back together, and you had market rallies after both of those events, you know, just like you did after Silicon Valley blew up. So, you know, but but what it tells you is, is that there's problem. there are problems percolating underneath the surface and they just have not surfaced yet and as in my letter as it talks about i mean i you know i got six or seven signs of these which i call them rivets popping right i mean you know you're starting to see us cds is starting to trade up again you know you're starting to see the bond move index is trading up again i mean you've got all these various you know pieces of evidence that would suggest to you that you know there's there's financial distress in the system and um and it's going to kind of eventually come home to roost um so you know and we know that the issue is just we don't know the timing um and we don't know how long how far we could go before it does come home to roost it could be you know it could be a little bit further i mean i i put it as it's very highly likely that we will have problems within you know six months a year at the absolute most and and i think there's a good chance it's a lot shorter than that but I've been awfully wrong money plenty of times when I try to predict the exact timing of something because you just can't. Yeah, so. you and me both. Um, you mentioned yield curve control before. I was reading one of the guys that I read on Substack's name is Concoda, uh, which is mm-hmm. a, a great read, does a great Substack, way more well-informed than I am. So cancel my subscription and go subscribe to this guy. <laughs> but uh, I was reading one of his notes the other day, and he wrote, you know, that the bonds will keep crashing until the Fed says we're going to let the bond market figure it out and just kind of throws their hand up there. So, you know, it's one of those, as Jung would say, what you resist persists. And so I guess my question to you is, what do you think will happen? Do you think bond vigilantes are going to force the Fed into yield curve control? I do eventually. Um, but I think there are probably a couple of moves before then. I mean, you know, there's, they're, they're very good at kind of doing a back forth. I mean, well, look, we know, for example, that the, the odds now, I mean, as recently as a month or two ago, the odds of a Fed rate hike in November were like 30 percent, right? right? Now they're zero, right? I mean, it, it's clear they've seen enough cars, they're scared enough that they're like, there's no way they're raising right now. But they haven't taken a future hike off the table. Well, in my view, a future hike, that's gone. They're, they're, the, the, this Fed cycle's done. They're, they're not going to raise rates again. It doesn't matter what the inflation numbers are. Um, they've started to signal that the bond market has done the tightening for them. I mean, there were, you know, eight or 10, you know, Fed speakers. I mean, Fed is so great at telegraphing what they're thinking that we're saying, well, we could be done because the bond market is kind of telling us we're done. And right. so, you know, so you see, so so what they're going to do, in my view, is they're going to slowly but surely back away from the tightening. Okay, now they're flat. And then something will probably break because I think they've done gone too far already. And when something probably does break, that's when they'll come in with the fire hoses. And so, okay, QT is done, um, and, and we're going to start cutting. And, you know, the market throughout all of that is going to say, you know, and, and the stock market is going to think, oh, great, we're safe. They're not, but they're going to think that. The bond market will actually rally because in a, in a downturn with, you know, and I mean, look, we know, that, we know the Fed is money good to pay back the principal. What we don't know is whether the principal has any value, right. and that goes to you know how much they printed. But, but my gut is at that point in time you'll probably get a pretty big bond market rally, um, until such time as, you know, it becomes apparent that there's no spending restraint, and then then you know what happens to the bonds is a little less clear, and maybe that rally 
maybe that rally fades. And, and so I think eventually, as, as that rally wears off and rates start to climb again, the Fed is going to be forced to say, okay, fine, we're, you know, we're going to step in and, and cut rates and do yield curve control and do QE and do all those things we do. Because their fear of having the whole system blow up, Chris, is worse than their fear of inflation. I mean, right, correct. And, and they, they deal with, you know, they're, they're and, always and it's not even curve. close. It's not even it, close. It, it's not even close. Exactly. It's not. And, and, and then they deal with what's right in front of their face. So they had an enormous inflation problem. And Powell did a very good job of being the actor and playing the role of monetary tough guy. Um, and, and who knows, by then we might have a different Fed chairman. You know, he could theoretically say he's resigning for personal reasons. Who knows? But but I think, you know, there's no doubt that, you know, or, or a war could. I mean, look, you have a you have an enormous shooting war and things really get tough and we have to start spending like crazy. I mean, they're going to come around. They're going to say, hey, you know, all your IRAs that we're giving you tax benefits on. Guess what? Those have to buy you know, government treasury bonds. If they don't, we're taking away the tax benefit. I mean, they right. could do that. I mean, you know, they could say we're going to, you know, gasoline, the prices are really high. Guess what? We're going to, you know, we're in a war now. We're going to go to get, you know, we're going to do gas rationing. I mean, they did these things in World War II. This is not outside. You know, they grabbed all the gold in the 30s. I mean, you know, this is not outside of their purview to change the rules and get very aggressive about messing with all of us. And a war is a perfect excuse. Right. But let's for for the sake of argument, let's say things settle down in the Middle East and we don't have a big shooting war, which is what I'm praying happens. If that happens, you know, they're still going to run into trouble because of the math of the compound interest and the level of the debt, you know, as against the, the lack of growth in the GDP. And so, you know, those two lines are going to cross and they're going to be forced to to deal with the fact that, you know, their interest costs. I mean, right now, the interest cost on the debt is average is like two and a half percent. You know, and, and but the average Treasury bonds in the market are selling at five percent. So we're spending a trillion dollars a year on interest right now. If 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 we go up, if when the whole thirty-five trillion of U.S. debt goes up to the five percent, and that'll take some time because some of it's termed out, but a lot of it'll roll within the next three years. As that debt goes at much higher rates, I mean, we're going to have one point eight two, and this is in my report as well, one point eight two trillion dollars in interest costs. I mean, we're running a two trillion. Here's the thing that's the most amazing to me, Chris. I'm sure it's amazing to you too. We are running a two trillion dollar deficit in a healthy economy with full employment. Yeah. Okay. Sick. Now, now think about it. What happens if the stock market rolls over, the economy turns down, and unemployment goes up? I mean, historically, when those when those events occur, tax revenues go down, social spending goes up, other spending goes up, and you know your deficit blows out. You know, between six and twelve percent. Well, are, you know, are we going to have a $5 trillion deficit? And then are we going to have to print the money to pay the interest on the debt? I mean, you know, this eventually this goes, you know, third world banana republic, you know, at the extreme Weimar-like, where, you know, they're spending so much money they cannot stop. And, and this, is, this is Gresham's law, and I've said this many times in the past. You know, it's all over when everybody realizes they're lying and they can never stop printing, and the money is losing value very, very quickly. Right. And as, as we all know, the stories of Weimar, I mean, you know, people got paid. They literally went, they rushed to spend their money within a day because they knew it one day later that it would be worth less. We're nowhere near that, obviously, and I'm not suggesting we will go to Weimar because I think there could be interventions, a lot of them, that could stop it before we get to that stage. But the point is, as more and more people come to realize that they can never stop printing money. They can never stop debasing the currency. 
you know, the two obvious areas that are going to show it are the price of gold and the price of Bitcoin, because they're the two sound money alternatives. And so as those things go higher, more and more people are going to say, Jesus, I'm the sucker here. Right. You know, I'm getting I'm getting paid money and I know that it's not going to hold its value. You know, if I've got any savings, I've got to put them into one of these two assets. And and, and so those assets go up and nobody's willing to save in Treasury bonds. And, you know, rinse, wash, repeat. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually, you know, they go parabolic and the dollar has no value. I mean, that's that's kind of the end game of it all, which is terribly sad. And I'm not something I'm really rooting for, but more, you know, almost looking at it like an engineer, something that I'm you know, looking at a system and saying this is how the system operates. Right. These are the parameters and these are the rules. This is what's going to happen. You know, it's, I mean, and it's sad. It's terribly sad, but, but it is what it is. And the reason I make as much noise as I do on Twitter, and as you know, I'm a loudmouth on Twitter, is that I'm just, I'm just so pissed off at how this country's been ruined by these Keynesians and, 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 and our government. I mean, they've just, you know, the reason we are all suffering, the reason things are as hard as they are for so many people in this country is because of the monetary mismanagement. And sadly, you know, most of the country's running around, you know, saying blue team did it or red team did it. And no, the answer is the Uniparty did it. They both did it, and they did it by messing up the money. And if we really want to drain the swamp, you know, the impulse of all the Trump voters, you know, the way to the way to drain the swamp is to fix the money. You know, it's not blue team, red team aren't going to save you. If so. uh, if you go onto uh, my blog, the link is in the podcast description, and then you click onto uh, there's a free article that i put your appendix to your letter in it's called monetary debasement is highly likely it'll be right there on the front page and you scroll down there's a federal debt maturing schedule uh chart that goes very well with the point that you just made and i just wanted people to know that that's there they can check out that chart which you know basically shows like where the debt was issued um and you know the maturing schedule and and how much of the debt matures you know within the next three years uh, right, it's quite right. a bit. <laughs> right, and 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 as you know, I mean, the other chart that's in there somewhere, I don't know the page it's on, but it's it's just federal interest expense. I mean, you know, it it looks like kind of a parabola going straight up. Yeah, it's I scary. Mean, it's really scary. I mean, we were spending a couple hundred billion dollars a year on interest as recently as four or five years ago, and now we're at a trillion and rising fast, and and that's just that's just not good. I mean it. Any financial analyst, you know, and, and, and any world, and, and by the way, everybody else in the world sees this too. And so, you know, the Chinese are selling our bonds. The Japanese are selling our bonds. I mean, we used to have a big treasury bond market and, you know, all of the excess capital in the world used to get recycled into it because it was the surest, safest thing out there. And since 2014, as Groman points out, you know, the bond market uh, buyers of foreign buyers of U.S. bonds have declined substantially and, you know, Treasury, uh, um, I'm sorry, central bank buying of gold has increased substantially. And what that's saying is that all these other countries are voting with their feet. And they're saying, we don't trust these bonds. We trust gold more. So, you know, this, this, this informs me as to, you know, where if you have savings and assets today, where do you put them? Well, you start by putting them in something that can't be printed. So, you know, and, and what can be printed? Obviously, the dollar can be printed. Bonds can be printed or issued. So you avoid those like the plague. You know, and then real estate obviously is a sound asset, but they can tax it and you can't move it. So if you want a financial asset that you can move around, you know, what what, what clearly can't be printed, you know, or, or printed beyond a schedule in the case of Bitcoin, 
are gold, silver, and Bitcoin. So to me, these are your three sound money assets that everybody needs to own some of um, because, you know, as this printing continues and I think gets worse, um, the prices of these assets is going to at least somewhat protect your purchasing power. It's funny when, you know, look, we talk about Ackman and you guys and you seeing the bond market differently. And, you know, there's there's two sides of the coin here. And I listen to you talk about, you know, how monetary policy has ruined the country. And I I think that myself and I agree right. with you on everything. But I also am constantly questioning myself. I'm constantly asking, you know, maybe am I am I right? But it's just not going to play out. Could I be right in principle, but not right in, you know, or right in theory, but not right in, you know, how things are actually going to go. Well, but, you know, I've been, um, yeah. hold on one sec. I'm, I'm always trying to second guess myself and, and, and put myself in the shoes of, you know, somebody like an Ackman who says, okay, come in, you know, come in and bail out the banks and save the system or somebody like a Yellen or somebody like, you know, a fed chair that's That's going to say to you, that we're always going to have the solution. There's always going to be a lever that we can pull. And so when I think about when I think about whether or not the Keynesian experiment really is the path to utopia, and maybe I'm just missing it all, right? Maybe I'm just, you know, maybe it takes a certain level of intelligence to understand the Austrian school and, and why it looks like the reasonable solution, but I can't hit that next level of intelligence to, to figure out why the Keynesian uh, theory and the modern monetary theorists have everything trumped and we really can orchestrate everything. Then I see something like Jerome Powell at the Economic Club last week where he's asked on stage, what, what's the neutral rate? Where do you think – I don't know if you saw this, but there was a two-minute clip – you know, what do you think the neutral rate is? And he just has no idea. He's just yeah. making it up. First off, he literally says, I don't know. Then he talks himself around in a bunch of circles. Then he says, well, well, we got a bunch of people that sit around a table and write write their estimates on a sheet of paper once a week. And, and we submit that, and that's how we come up with the neutral rate. Okay, so there's no... You know, I think even the host says, well, you know, don't you have any models? Don't you don't you have any like <laughs> I know. And he's just like, club. yeah, he's like, we just don't know. And so I look yeah. at something like that and I just think, like, am I the asshole that doesn't get it? Like, really? Is that it? Like, are we the assholes, Larry? No, I don't think so, Chris. I really don't. I mean, you know, water is still wet and, you know. The sun sun still shines. I mean, they're just there's certain universal laws and truths. And uh, you know, um, look, it, this, the Keynesianism has been a persistent illusion. And you know, just ask my wife. I mean, she's you know very tired of hearing how quickly gold is going to work and how I'm going to be proven right. So you know, um, time scale matters, right? I mean, I've been in this trade since the early '80s, and and only seen things that indicate that I'm right. Um, but, but I haven't won in the way that I expect to win. And, and, you know, it might be for my kids to win in, in the trade because the other side has a lot of tools to kind of keep it all going, but you're definitely not the asshole, Chris, and you're definitely not wrong. I mean, there's just lots of logical ways to look at it. I mean, you know, money is a good, and, um, we all know, and I think we all believe even Keynesians would admit that that free markets provide the highest, you know, and, and, and best way of, of allocating goods and services and, and providing prosperity. I mean, you don't do it with communism, you do it with free markets. And, 
um, you know, by setting the rate, by having 12 policymakers and 400 PhDs at the Fed who set the interest rate, that's not a free market. Right. That's the Politburo saying grain should be this price. And when they did that back in the 60s and 70s, whatever, they either had years they had way too much grain or they had way too little grain right. because the farmers figured out, you know, well, it works or it doesn't work. And so, you know, letting the letting a bunch of elected or, or appointed officials set the price of the most important good, you know, the base level good, which is money in the economy, is just a recipe for disaster, just right. logically. Now, you know, can you do it? Yeah. Can you continue to create a system that works? Yeah. Can you use fractional reserve banking to create credit and grow? Yeah. What, what's the cost of doing it? The cost is persistent inflation. I mean, uh, you know, as, as we all know, the dollar has lost 97, 98% of its value since 71 when we went off the gold standard. So, um, you know, that's the cost. And can they continue to do it and hold the system together with persistent inflation? Yeah, probably. Maybe they could keep it going for another 50 years. I know a lot of people who think that. And and, and I, I applaud you for, you know, being a devil's advocate on your own positions because I, I do it on my, you know, to my, I do it as well. And it's, and it's hard. And I, I recognize that there's a possibility that this can kicking can continue forever. Um, having said that, um, I, I have noticed and observed that the, the frequency of the swings and the magnitude of the swings and the size of the swings, are, you know, it's getting, it, it, it's, it's increasing. The tempo is increasing is I guess the way to say it. And so I, I do feel like we are coming much, much closer to the end of the great Keynesian experiment. And, um, and I think what people are missing is the whole issue of exponential growth. Um, and I don't have the numbers right in front of me now, but it's, you know, if, if it's the, it's, if you, if you take something and you double it over some very short, it, it doesn't take long until, you know, the, the number gets enough to take you from here to the moon or, you know, it, it's like the, if you, you know, a drop of water into a stadium, there's a good example I put on my Twitter feed, talk about how quickly a stadium fills up, you know, when you just double the amount of water that goes in every minute. And you would think that doubling the amount of water that goes into a stadium every minute, it would take, you know, days, weeks, months, years to fill it up. No, it fills up in 57 minutes. So, you know, it, it, it's, and, and, but at the seven minute mark, you're only like 10% full. So, you know, it, it's when you, when you, when you grow something as fast as we're growing the debt, when you grow the money supply in the way that we've grown it and it compounds, um, ultimately, you know, that exponentiality of it becomes a real problem. And I, I feel like we're at that stage now. I mean, you know, we went from 800 billion in the 800 billion on the balance sheet fed pre, um, you know, pre uh, the GFC to three trillion, three, three, seven, I think trillion. And we went from, and it came back in a little bit. We went from three something up to nine, you know, and, and the next one's <laughs> coming and the next one, the next one will take us from nine to 24. Right. Right. And the one after that will take us from 24 to 50 or 60. Yeah. It's and, not exactly right? fucking rocket science to figure no, out. Is it? Not. No, no, it's not. And, and, but, and, but by the way, I mean, to be fair, you know, from 08 to 2020 was, you know, 12 years. And so, you know, I mean, could they keep this thing going another 10, 15, 20 years? Maybe. But the Maybe. Exce it's accelerating, right? It's it's going parabolic. That's my, that's, so the, that's the, my the, point. The, the monetary figures are getting larger and the amount of time is getting shorter. So exactly. what is going to be – That's my point. What's going to be, like Luke Groman said on Palisades Gold Radio maybe six months ago, and you were just alluding to this as well, but I want your opinion – he said, look, there's going to be this point where people realize that the U.S. is incapable of uh, 
incapable of paying the interest on its debt and is going to have to, you know, print to do that. And there will be some type of psychological crux there where everybody, you know, I think world leaders are already having this aha moment, as you said, China's selling their bonds, Japan's selling their bonds, whatever. But when is that, what's that tipping point going to be? What do you see that tipping point as, as well, you, being? You've, you've, you've hit on the exact most important thing. I've, I've studied that, That's because I'm a genius, Larry. You are a genius. You are. You are well, this is, this is, we're a self-referential pod here. I mean, we, we both love each other, so it's I'm like drunk. You know, whatever. But yeah, no. So, so the, look. The bottom line is, um, if you study hyperinflations, that's the point you're alluding to is the point at which it becomes all over, and that's when a quorum of the population of the people involved realize that they can never stop. Right. In other words, you you and I have you and I hold this opinion that it's mathematically certain that they have to continue to keep inflating and that the inflation will continue and get worse. Okay. You and I hold that opinion. And, and I would guess maybe in the United States today, maybe 5% of the people hold that opinion, maybe 10. I don't know. I kind of, it's low. It's not, it's not a quorum, not anywhere close to no. it. But, 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 but let's look at it this way, Chris. I, I suspect that number is bigger than it was six months ago or two years ago or five oh, sure. years ago yep. or 10 years ago. Right. Yeah, it's in probably words, gone from like one to two percent. If I had to guess, maybe. Yeah, maybe. That's right. But even if it's even if it's only doubling, with the next doubling, it'll be four, and then it'll be eight, and then it'll be sixteen, and then it'll be thirty-two, and then it'll be sixty-four. At sixty-four, it's all over, right? I mean, in other words, you know, when when a quorum comes to believe that, then it's just a swoosh, you know, because everybody runs to the sound money, you know, everybody realizes, oh my God, this we're getting baked and. You know, and that's, I mean, look at the Weimar gold chart. You can see it. You know, it kind of, you know, it, it started in 1917, 1918. I don't have the chart right in front of me. 1919, 20, you know, and, it, and there were zigs and zags. And by the way, we're having one of those zags right now. I mean, you know, my fund did great in 19, 2019, 2020. It's, it's done shitty for a couple of years because Powell's tightened money. But that money tightening cannot last unless he wants to crater the entire world economy. And he doesn't and he won't. He's just trying to hold the system together. They're all playing for time. And time is a, is a cruel master, and it just keeps on marching. Yeah. And compound interest is a cruel master, and it just keeps on marching. So, I, you know, my gut, Chris, is we've probably got another two or three swings. And when people push me hard and say, when's that like, when's that point, the, the point you just described, Chris, when's that likely to occur? I put it at 2030, maybe 2032. Okay. Um, if I had to guess. I mean, it could come sooner, but you know, there'll be there'll be just swings back and forth. If I kind of look at the rhythm of the game, that feels right to me. That also kind of fits with Howen Strauss and the fourth turning theory, which kind of says these things tend to be twenty to thirty years long at the most. And if I I think the starting point of this fourth turning was two thousand eight, without well, a doubt. And and that is the moment that like all Austrians talk about, right? And so you right. you have this. That's really what we get ridiculed for. Peter Schiff always says, you know, everybody's playing poker. Everybody's playing for, you know, this hand, but I'm playing for the tournament. I want to have all the chips at the end of the day. And then you get right. the, you. So you get the people that say, all right, well, you're wrong. And, and Keynesian's uh, modern monetary theory is the answer. So you're just wrong uh, in theory. <laughs> right. You have those people. And then you have the people that say, well, you should be you should be sticking and moving and getting long stocks here until that's going to happen. And you have to know the timing. So that is really what we get ridiculed for the most but i i Correct. you know the question really does 
doesn't come down to if, it comes down to when. And that move, when it does happen, and there will be an oh shit moment. That, you know, there and and maybe they will save the stock market and save the economy on a nominal basis, but it won't be it won't be on a real basis. Right. You know? Well, well, one thing. I mean, let's let's be let's be clear. It doesn't have to be an endpoint of hyperinflation. There can be a quote unquote reset somewhere along the way. In other words, I mean, and, and Groman talked about this recently in a podcast, which I highly recommend everybody listen to. He did it with uh, Danny Moses on the, you know, I think it's I don't I don't know the name of the podcast, but anyway, Groman with Danny Moses, listen to it, and and they could basically say, hey, you know, we recognize we've got a monetary problem, we recognize we've got a debt problem here. We've got to do kind of what Roosevelt did in the 30s, where he grabbed the gold and repriced it. We've got to reset this monetary system and put it on a sound basis. And if they were, you know, Groman uses the example, he said, look, if they were to revalue gold at $25,000 an ounce and attach the dollar back to gold, you know, they would instantly, you know, there would be a lot of inflation when that happened. Obviously, gold people would make a lot of money. They'd probably figure out a way to tax them 90%, but that's a different matter. And, and they would instantly have the, the system back on a sound money basis before we had spun off into hyperinflation. And it's possible that there are monetary people who are aware of that. And, I mean, there are some pretty smart people out there, you know, Judy Shelton and others, who might, you know, be advising others, and, you know, as to what, what, what will have to happen at some point if we don't want to have hyperinflation. So, so there is a, there's a better course that involves a reset. But... You know, is there a way look, to reset? Is there a way of the is, problem right now? So the odds of, I mean, you don't hear anybody talking about that. And and my suspicion is, you know, to get that um, to get that discussion started, you know, we're going to have to have 15, 20 percent inflation persistently. And then then you're going to see the sound money people come out of the woodwork. And then the Keynesians are going to be kind of discredited. And then I think there's an actual chance that somebody's going to say, hey, you know, this debt really is a problem. This this unbacked money really is a problem. Let's reset it once. But isn't, isn't we, there a reset solution that doesn't involve gold or Bitcoin or, or sound money? Well, can't can't they just hack off do, three zeros? Can't everybody, can't we have a consortium of the all tr- the major the tr- nations the trillion dollar and, coin? and hack off yeah, the, three zeros on everybody's Excel spreadsheet and fucking start over? You, maybe. You, could, you know, maybe you're talking about the trillion dollar coin. I mean, the problem is... If um, I'm talking about a global debt jubilee. Yeah, no, I get it. A, a jubilee. I get it. Um, I think possibly the issue the issue there, Chris, is that, you know, um, it, what's going on, what, the process that's taking place is people are losing faith in the fiat currencies, right? And and so if you decided, well, look, we're just going to hack off all these zeros and, and reset it, um, you know, which is massively inflationary because everybody's got currency that's in those zeros is it now doesn't buy as much. That doesn't really solve the underlying problem of loss of faith in the fiat. You're just saying we're doing, you know, we're just doing a new set of, of fiat with a new set of numbers and, and therefore it's smaller. Do you follow me? Yeah. I, I mean, it, so it's, so it's like, it's kind of like the, the, the underlying issue is that the paper money isn't backed by anything. So to try to go to a system, I mean, this is why, you know, I, I think one of the things they've, they've been thinking about trying is the CBDC idea. But, you know, that's just a digital version of paper money. So that, that doesn't solve the problem. The problem is that the money is issued by the government and the government is behaving irresponsibly. <laughs> Excuse me. There is one other possibility that I think would solve the problem. And I watch for this. And when I do the devil's advocate on my own fund and my own thesis, this is what scares me. Okay. 
let's and of course you'll laugh because these are unlikely events but let's imagine that we got responsible thoughtful intelligent you know people running all throughout our government and they said hey you know what we're going to trim social security we're going to trim medicare because people are living longer than we thought we can't afford these things we're going to means test it you know we're going to um we're going to get out of all these military bases all around the world we're going to cut our military way back we're going to sue everybody for peace. We're going to try and disarm, you know, the nuclear weapons that everybody has so that we don't blow the world apart. Um, we're going to invest in nuclear to, you know, get a lot more productivity so that we have a continued, you know, growth in low-cost energy. And we're going to balance the budget. There's going to be a balanced budget among amendment. <laughs> it makes I mean, too much but, sense. It'll never happen. Well, exactly. I mean, look, if, if, if all of that was about to happen, you know, I'm in the wrong place in terms of the way I've invested, Right. And it, um, that might happen, but we're going to have to go through hell first. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, that that's the fundamental problem, that there's no foresight, no intelligence, you know, in the folks who are running the show. I mean, we unfortunately, we've got kind of the worst of us, you know, running the show. I mean, I you know, I would be happier putting people randomly picked out of the phone book in, you know, the Senate and Congress and all the other, you know, governmental offices than, than the people we've got there today. And so, you know, as a result, um, I, I think that what I just described is very unlikely to happen. So let me ask you a question, um, just kind of dovetailing off of that. And I have a few more things. I You have time, right? You have a little bit more time? I guess as much time as you want. Yeah, I'm good. Right, beautiful. Well, we may bore the listeners, but... Well, Fine. whatever. That's their problem, you know? <laughs> yeah, they can stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's the listener's responsibility to keep themselves amused. If it sucks, turn it off. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Go listen to Luke Groman on whatever the fuck you just said, the other thing, whatever, and the hell with us. All right. But this is just, you know, this is me and you talking. We haven't even talked really since our last podcast, so I have things that I want to ask you anyways. But dovetailing off of what you just said, what is the situation right now and this is before I ask you about Bitcoin, because I know, I know you're going to want to talk about it because it's been kicking ass. That's <laughs> uh, okay. And before okay. I talk to you about gold and before I talk to you about the market, I want to know what what could the U.S. do today? If you're Fed chair and Treasury secretary tomorrow, what what are like the first five or ten steps you take to try to right the ship naturally without and, and like literally like what would you do tomorrow? Um, to write well, the economic one, ship in the U.S. Yeah, one. If I were the Fed chair, I think I think Powell has been irresponsible. I mean, to me, Yellen, the Congress, etc. They're the junkie, and you know Powell is the dealer, right? I mean, the the Fed policies have allowed the federal government to behave incredibly irresponsibly, and I think it would. I believe it's Powell's duty and role if he's an officer. Of a, I mean, the Fed's a funny beast, right? It's not they're not elected, but whatever. But anyway, I think it's Powell's role to say, look, folks, this, I mean, he said he's admitted it's unsustainable. Some of the things he said actually blow my mind when he walks around. And he says, I'm, I'm navigating with a sextant in, a, in cloudy skies. I'm like, what the fuck, dude? How can you say shit like that? You're basically saying I got no clue what I'm doing, which we know is true, but you're not supposed to say it. Right. <laughs> I mean, um, so. You know, I, I think I would start off if I were Paul and I would say, hey, 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 Congress, hey, hey government, uh, I'm not doing this anymore. Do, right. do you know what I mean? In, in other words, you, you have got to you've got to stop spending. You've got to balance the budget or you are going to destroy the dollar and the country. I mean, just I, I call it for what it is. 
Um, you know, and I, and I would threaten to resign over it, I think. I mean, I think that's his most honorable move. I, I doubt he'll do that. Um, you know, if I were Federal Reserve chairman, I mean, the first thing I would do is I'd say we're, you know, we're returning to the gold standard. The new reference price is X and I'm firing myself. The Fed, we're, we're, you know, we're not, we don't, we, we, we don't, we don't need a lender of last resort. I mean, the Fed was created by the money interests and the money cartel to be the lender of last resort. And what's happened is all the money interests and the money cartel, i.e. the bankers, et cetera, have figured out how to game the system so that they get extremely rich. And this right. is why Jamie Dimon is a billionaire, you know, because he was able to load himself up on J.P. Morgan stock options in 2008 when J.P. Morgan was basically bankrupt. And, and yet, you know, he knew the Fed was standing behind him ready to, you know, you know hit the liquidity hose and, and, and get the whole thing going again. And therefore, he knew that those stock options would go up, you know, multiples of, of what he was issued them at. And that's, that's how he became a billionaire. And, you know, that's the same thing. I mean, I, I see Lloyd Blankfein, he, there was a while when he was holding forth on Twitter on all kinds of things. And I was like, you know, I, I think we shut him up because I was like responding like, dude, you should be bankrupt. I mean, you know, he was he was at uh, Goldman Sachs and, you know, Goldman was completely and utterly bankrupt in 2008. I mean, the, the biggest crime in this whole process was 2008. And I don't think this country's ever recovered from it. I mean, the fact that the bankers got bailed out and were paying themselves big bonuses. I mean, they screwed everything up. The Big Short's such a wonderful movie. Thank God it was made um, because, you know, they screwed everything up. And um, and yet there was they paid no price for it. I mean, it was capitalism without, you know, without failure, without bankruptcy. And they, they all should have been bankrupt and they weren't. And so, um, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure I'm really answering your question, but I'm I'm giving you some of my views on, on you know, the, the issue, right? Yeah, I, and I guess I'm trying to figure out, too, like, how long of a process it would be. Like, it would probably take 50 years to, to like, to right the ship again, I think, you know. Or, I mean, if you came in and you made all those swift changes in one day, it would probably take that long for, like, all of those things to for the shock to kind of work its way through possibly, the system, right? Possibly, Chris. I mean, the, the funny thing is, you know, again, having read about and studied a lot of hyperinflation, even talked to people who've lived through some of them in, you know, Yugoslavia, Argentina, various places, it's amazing how quickly mankind, humankind, gets back to just doing what they do well, which is getting up every morning, going to work, and putting food on the table when the money is sound again. Right. I mean, you know, hyperinflation is a dreadful event. I mean, it's what led, you know, Germany to you know, support Hitler and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It, it's a dreadful event. It, it just it's unfair. It's, it's horrible. But, you know, post hyperinflation, what most societies do is they say, shit, we got to go back to sound money. Right. And they do. And they recover. And, and the recovery is not forever. I mean, hell, you know, Germany and Japan, not only do they have hyperinflation, to you know their currencies were worthless they also had their entire countries were bombed out they had they lost all their industrial base now you know it took a while but what the war ended in 46 and you know in the 50s there was not much going on in either of those countries but by the 60s or 70s you know japan was starting to take over the you know the, the motorcycle market and then they turned that into the car market and germany had recovered and you know that's not that long a period from 46 to say 60 that's 20 years so, you know, even if we have a really big monetary accident here, if we go back to sound money and, and again, and, and, and those are in cases where the war had totally destroyed those two economies and, the, and the, their industrial bases. I mean, you know, we have not if, if we don't get into a shooting war, if we don't get into a nuclear exchange in this fourth turning, which I pray is the case, 
you know, nothing's been destroyed. People haven't been killed. All the stuff's here. The computers are here. The, all the technology's still here. You know, the only thing that's wrong is the money. Now, what will happen is the money will shift hands. You know, the people who have bonds, they're going to be broke. You know, the people who were holding fiat currency, they're going to be broke. The people who had stuff, the stuff will retain its value. People who had gold and silver and Bitcoin, you know, they're going to be the wealthiest people in the country or the world. I mean, I think Eric Sprott could end up, you know, the world's wealthiest man for all the gold, you know, the gold mine. Actually, Michael Saylor will probably beat him, but they'll they'll be in a close competition. If we have hyperinflation in fiat currencies, those two guys will probably be the wealthiest guys in the world. So, um, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's really just kind of a changing of the guard that's going to take place and. And my view is it, it will be a good thing that, that there will be a much fairer and more equitable society as a result of it. I mean, you won't have all these contillionaires. You won't have all these people who got rich by, you know, moving paper around like Bill Ackman. You know, you're, you're actually engineers are going to get rewarded. Workers are going to get rewarded. People who add value are going to get rewarded. And it's, it's just going to be it's going to be a much better world. I mean, I, I kind of remember it wasn't perfect. But I grew up in that world. I kind of remember that world growing up in the Midwest in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, and I watched, you know, I watched my parents do it. My dad was a mail carrier. You know, I watched him work six days a week to to earn, you know. And and really, there's there's a part of me still that because I sit at a desk for a living. And and there's a part of me still. I was walking on uh, 2nd and Chestnut Street a couple months back, and they were replacing the cobblestone in old city Philadelphia streets right. and they were doing it one brick at a time, one cobblestone brick at a time. They had tore up the block between second street and front street, which is all cobblestone. It's uh, you know, basically two lanes, but uh, it's all cobblestone and they had tore out all the cobblestone and there were guys down there replacing every single brick individually. And I remember just walking past them thinking like, these are the motherfuckers that deserve to become millionaires. You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck did I do today? I sat at a desk and I typed a bunch of shit in Microsoft Word. You know what I mean? And yes, I, there's some value well, there. I, you know, and I'm providing a, 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 a product and a service. And, and, you know, I'm generating productivity with the work that I do also. But, you know, to see, I mean, those are the people that deserve to be rewarded. Not the hedge fund managers, the guy that fucking unclogs their toilet when they need it. <laughs> Well, that's 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 right. I mean, it, it look it it in a in a sound money system, skills and value added get priced appropriately. Right. And um and being Bill Ackman doesn't make you worth a billionaire because you can't you can't manipulate a sound money system. You just can't. You know, I mean, developing a better and faster chip like Hewlett and Packard did in the early days, well, that could make you a billionaire. But that's right. actually adding a ton of fucking value. Do, do you know what I mean? And yeah, so hell yeah. Um, so it, you know, again, it's, it's back to the money being attached to what's truly value added, but when you unanchor the money and you allow some set of people to get the money for free and then buy up assets, I mean, it's like, it's like the old movie wall street. I mean, even as far back then, they kind of foreshadowed it. You know, the guy was going to do a leverage, he foreshadowed the leverage buyout game. And I've got a great book by Gretchen Morgan I'm reading right now about how private equity has just plundered all these companies. I mean, you know, they would buy them, lever them up, you know, take out huge cash dividends, and then let the company go BK. Well, I mean, that's the model, the, yep. 
right? I mean, but but that's all based on fiat money, cheap money, mispriced money, right. et cetera. And it's all financial games, and it should not be occurring. And, and by it, the way, it I'm destroys not, productivity. It doesn't create it. it. It totally destroys productivity. And it, you know, think of the, I mean, that's the other thing. Think of all the people in this country that worked all their careers. I mean, this is the other tragic thing. And I, I'm from the Midwest, so I know a lot of Midwestern people. And Think of all the people in this country that worked their entire life for a big company and thought they had a pension that they could rely on. Right. And then the company got LBO'd and screwed up and this and the next thing. And their pension just kept getting whittled away. And in some cases, they've got zero pension or, you know, they should have had enough pension that it would give them a semi-decent comfort retirement. And they're getting a fraction of that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I mean, like, there was just again, a video a couple of months ago when Yellow went bankrupt of, of a right. worker for a truck driver for Yellow being told that his pension wasn't there or they weren't, you know, they weren't supporting exactly. it in the way that it was or it was being, you know, exactly. plundered in I mean, some way. And the guy fucking flips out. And I'm sitting here watching it like, him. I don't blame him either. You know what I mean? Yeah, 30 years fucking him. hauling I mean, shit on a tractor trailer. And then that, that's yeah. what happened because some guy in a fucking I mean, suit. Look, to me, it's to me, it's pretty simple. I mean. All people really want is to have, quote unquote, to feel like they're not getting fucked, to have mm -hmm. a semi-fair deal and to be able to live their lives and raise their kids in peace. Right. I mean, as you know, as I've often said, I mean, I don't have any desire to kill any Ukrainians or any Russians or any, you know, Palestinians or others. I mean, I don't have a desire to kill anybody. No normal, no normal person has any desire to kill other people. Right. Right. And yet nation states get us all spun up in this bullshit where, you know, these guys are bad guys. I mean. You know, Smedley Butler had it right, you know, 100 years ago. I mean, war is a friggin' racket run by these states, period. And, you know, I mean, I think that's one of the beautiful things of what's happening here, in my view, is we're, we're moving into kind of a post-industrial world that's getting more and more decentralized. The Internet is allowing all these big sclerotic things to get broken apart. Like, I mean, I love the fact that Joe Rogan has more listeners than, you know, CNN or that, you know, that Tucker can leave and, and crush Fox in terms of viewers. I mean, people are figuring it out that the system as it's currently constructed is designed to fuck them. And, and therefore, you know, we've got to fight hard to, to destroy that old system and go back to a more democratic and fair system. You know, and, and the saddest thing I see is, is some of the youth, including one of my children, we're actually kind of embracing a little bit of the socialism thing. Do you know what I mean? Because, cap I mean, they say, well, capitalism's not fair. Well, I get it. The kind of capitalism we have right now is not fair. It's not really capitalism. This is crony capitalism. Do you know what I mean? Yep. But but capitalism will provide the best form of, you know, the, the highest and best life for the most people in the world. But it's got to be fair. It's got to be fair. And it's not. The system we've got now is badly, badly broken. So, you know, and, and, and my belief, and, and obviously this is just, you know, you can say, well, Larry, you've been really self-centered, blah, blah, blah. You know, maybe you're biased. And I, I'll, I'll concede all of that. But my belief is that the, that the money, that the base, the unsound money is at the base of it. And, and I draw that from studying history, and I draw that from watching how when we came off the gold standard in 71 to present, watching our country slowly but surely, you know, lose its position and its status as a result of you know and i think i think at the base is the is the unsound money and this is what people you know just don't get right right that, which is that you arrive at your conclusions first and you invest accordingly and not the other way around so the people that are constantly accusing you know austrian economists of being 
grifters and just trying to sell gold or just trying to pump Bitcoin or, you know, just trying to be bearish on the market. I mean, they don't realize, like, you know, we could turn around and get long the market tomorrow. We could run a long, you know, you could convert your fund to a long only fund and fucking, you know, short Bitcoin and short gold and say, hey, I'm throwing in with the modern monetary theorists, you know, just like that. There's nothing to it. And so, you know, it's like Peter Schiff has said, like he started a gold company because he believes in the principles that he believes in, not 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 he. Uh, not he chose to sell gold first, and so and then he backed his way into his uh, oh yeah his no, economic I mean, look, principles. And you're look, the same is, way, right? This, yeah, this is this has been the most painful trade in the world. I mean, I you know there's nobody can say, hey, Larry, you know you got rich off of this whole thing. I haven't. I mean, it's been a it's been a really fucking rough trade. But you know, I've, I've scraped out a living, no doubt. But um, you know, I think it's the right place to be. And as we talked about earlier with the the exponential function. You know, I think it's really going to become the right place to be. And as that plays itself out, you know, then maybe there will be a reward for those of us who've taken this view. And, um, you know, as I say to clients who are people who are thinking of becoming clients and okay, fine. You know, you may think I'm extreme. I get it. I'm not suggesting you take all of your money and put it in my fund. I'm suggesting that you do have some allocation, though, to sound money because you can't you can't. You can't ignore the risk that the government will continue to behave the way it's behaved and base the currency severely within your lifetime. And if you don't protect yourself against that to some degree, I, I think you'll experience regret. And, uh, and I think that that's getting the day when that's occurring is getting closer and closer you know, as we speak because of, you know, the acceleration that we were talking about earlier. So, all right, let's go to Bitcoin real quick because I just watched okay. your appearance. I no, I won't drive you nuts on Bitcoin. No, no, I no, no. <laughs> I just watched your appearance on another uh, podcast, which oh, okay. I think was a Bitcoin uh, yep. centric show. And yep. uh, I made you give me a mea culpa because you said, you know, I did. You were talking yeah. about people that you had red pilled or orange pilled and you orange said, quote yeah. the Ravens all in. And, yeah. and the truth is, the truth is that I am long Bitcoin and I'm long miners and I'm long a couple of uh, I'm long the BITO ETF and uh, I do have exposure to Bitcoin and I have more exposure now than I ever have. Um, I'm not all in, though, as you said. I However, get I get it. as I as I wrote to the people on my blog maybe a year ago uh, after listening to your explanation on Palisades Gold Radio one day, I was out for a run and, and it and it did click with me in a way that it hadn't. And I did increase uh, the amount of exposure I had to Bitcoin. I did write about it in my December. In December, I did 23 stocks I'm looking at for 2023. And I wrote about that. And uh, mm-hmm. and Bitcoin was in there as one of the things that I was watching for the year. So I am uh, bullish and I am long. Uh, but I'm not all, all in. That's all it takes. You don't, you, don't, you don't need a lot of Bitcoin to, to benefit from it. Well, I, I mean, hope not because just... I don't have a lot of money. Yeah. Well, you don't you, you don't need you don't need a ton of it. It's it, to me, it's the most asymmetric trade in the world. Um, and I, yeah, I, I'm sorry I overstated the case. I, I, I you're not all in, I, but but I did I, I do I do get to take credit for orange pilling. You, yes, right? you do. I mean, and and my yeah. and my sentiment on Bitcoin is markedly different than it was. Right. I remember there was a, time a year when ago, really and the adoption it. here over the last yeah six months has really added to that too. Yeah, well, the, you know, it's it's really it, – I, I find it fascinating how people slowly but surely flip. I mean, I never saw, thought I'd see Larry Fink talking about Bitcoin in a positive way, right? You know, and, and this, this guy runs BlackRock, obviously, and they're trying to get an ETF, and I think they will. 
And by the way, I mean, I would say probably the biggest the biggest investment case for Bitcoin right now, and Michael Saylor makes it eloquently, is that, you know, this is a situation where there are a lot of people in the world, investment advisors, RIAs, who have kind of come to the conclusion, you know what, I should put a little of this in my, in my client's portfolio. But they really can't because they can't go buy a Trezor and they're not going to cold store it. And they're not going to buy it at Coinbase and all that. You know, it just doesn't fit. They need something that they that has a QCIP that they can put into their box and say, here, buy me 100 shares of that. Right. And and that's an ETF. And uh, and that has not existed. Don't they already have that with MicroStrategy? Well, yeah, they kind of do, but it's a company. I mean, you're right. And if they're smart and that's enough. That's why it trades at a premium, right? That's correct. That's correct. You're right. But I mean, in general, um, a lot of them aren't smart enough to know, even know what MicroStrategy is, sadly. I mean, you know what it is. I know what it is. But But the average guy, you know. And so if their client comes to them and says, hey, you know, I've heard about this Bitcoin thing. Shouldn't we have a little bit of that? And they and they could they could kind of have it with GBTC, but as you know, it was a closed end fund. It has premiums and discounts. I mean, that, there are issues there. So there's really been no way for them to buy quote unquote spot price Bitcoin in the market. Um, and an ETF is going to come. I mean, we, I think that's a safe bet. There have been seven applicants, including Fidelity, Vanguard. I mean, you know, a lot of people are trying to get one. And and these are people in BlackRock. These are people who are connected and have power in Washington and. And eventually, I think the pressure on the SEC is going to be overwhelming, and they are going to create a, a spot Bitcoin ETF. Um, it, it's interesting they haven't, by the way, but that's a different story. Um, and when that occurs, well, it's on its way now, right? I mean, yeah, it's it, on its way. The, yeah. Given these uh, latest uh, court rulings, so. it's it's but all yeah, but a it, foregone it, conclusion at this point, right? I think that's right. It's coming. And so, what you know when that occurs is that there's. I don't know. Do you know the exact number of RI, the dollar amount of RIA money out there? I don't. I can't remember off the top of my head. No I want to say, I want to say it's like ten trillion. Somebody told me ten trillion. Let's 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 run with that. Well, okay, fine. You know, let's say five percent of that money says, you know, we, we need to buy some Bitcoin. Well, okay, that's five hundred billion right there. That's that's the total market value of Bitcoin today. So, um, and that's only a 5% allocation. Now, maybe it'll take a while to get to a 5% allocation. The point is, not every Bitcoin that's out there is for sale. A lot of them that are held are held in very strong hands that they won't sell anywhere near this price. So there's probably at any given point in time, you know, they're, they're, we're at 19 point some million coins. We're asymptotically getting close to 21 million. You know, the last one will be mined, in, I don't know, 2040 or something, but, um, or 2140. But, um, you know, the, the basically, um, you know, there, there are 19 million out there, 19 some million out there today. Probably 3 million have been lost. I don't know. There are varying estimates on that. So let's say there's 16. And then within that, like 70% of that 16 haven't traded in over a year, which means they're kind of the long term true believers who are unlikely to sell at anything close to that price. So that means 30% of 16. So, so there are 3.2, you know, million of these things that maybe are kind of quote unquote available to be bought. You know, which is, you know, and that's a lot smaller than the 500 billion total market cap. So, you know, suddenly all this RIA money, you know, these guys say, hey, we need to buy some Bitcoin and they start coming chasing after this. I mean, it's going to go higher. I mean, that just is I mean, there's just little there's very little doubt in my mind. So, you know, if, to me, it's it's a, a very good asymmetric bet. And, you know, the, the and I say to my clients, I say, look, the only wrong allocation is zero. You don't have to go crazy on it. Uh, you know, I think this asset will go up 10x, and then I think it'll go up 10x again. I'm talking about it in a 10-year time frame, so give me a lot of time on that. But if you got something that could go up 100x, you know, even if you only put 
1% allocation into it. You know, that means in 10 years, that's, it's protected your portfolio. If every, if the other 99% went to zero, you'd still have the same portfolio size. So, um, you know, I, I think everybody needs to have some. And, you know, I leave it up to everybody what their right allocation is. I mean, as you know, the negative is it's quite volatile. Right. And, you know, it goes up and down a lot. I mean, and that's why, you know, I mean, it's it's to me, and, and, and we've discussed its characteristics before. I mean, I think the, I think the most important way that I characterize it is it's a technological innovation. It's an engineering solution to a problem, which is can we create true, quote, true provable digital scarcity? And until it existed, we could never do that. And now that it exists, we can do that. And the only risk that I see is that the thing blows up. And I was a lot more worried about that in 2013 than I am today. We've now got 800,000 plus blocks and 15 years of history and a bunch of core developers who've you know, perfected and refined it. And I think the, the risk of technical failure of this thing is like less than half of 1%. So as a result of that, my view is everybody's got to own some. And, you know, and it's going to be because there's a fixed supply. There are 8 billion people. There are 21 million of these coins. I mean, hell, there's 60 million millionaires in the world. So every millionaire in the world couldn't even own one Bitcoin. I think if you own one Bitcoin, which is, what, $35,000 today, you know, it's a nice car. I think if you own one Bitcoin, your kids are going to be very, very glad you did that. <laughs> very glad. And so, you know, it's that's kind of how I see it. And, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm orange-pilled all the way and I'm a big bull. But I haven't given up on gold either. Gold will do extremely well, too. Yeah, so, so what do you see the outlook for gold to be like? Even let, let's just say there isn't some great monetary reset. Yeah, without the big reset, just let's, let's dial in short term. So we've been bumping up against twenty one hundred, or, or I mean, sorry, twenty fifty, twenty seventy, but just below twenty one hundred. I mean, hell, we were at nineteen hundred in twenty eleven. So this there's a very clear ceiling between nineteen hundred and twenty one hundred. Okay, fine. We bumped up against it three times. I think the next time or the time after that, we're going through it. I think when it gets through it, all the algos will jump on it. It'll be a breakout. It'll be a new all-time high, and it'll go to 2,500 or 3,000 just very, very quickly. And, of course, that'll send all the minor stocks much, much higher, and I know you own a bunch of those, as, as do I. Um, I think after that, you know, it can go a lot higher, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be kind of consistently growing, and it depends upon the monetary <laughs> debasement, what time, what rate. Just to give you a frame of reference, though, Chris, I like to use these numbers because it just gives people a sense of how much money we printed. In 1971, before we went off the gold standard, you could take the monetary base and divide it by the 261 million ounces that the United States owns, and you came up with $35 an ounce. That was the reference price, right? It was the Bretton Woods reference price. Fine. If you did that same math today, if you took the monetary base today and divided it by 261 million coins, gold would be worth $80,000 an ounce. That's how much that's how much the monetary base has grown. Isn't that amazing? So well, it, gold is it, it's amazing, but it, it just makes you I mean <laughs> I don't know whether to take it as positive or negative reinforcement of well, our gold thesis well, because on one hand Well, no no, you're right. I mean it's well it, it also talks about how, how how successful they've been at paper gold and suppressing the price of gold. You're right. You're right. But the point is the point is if we I mean the problem we're facing is unsound money. Historically, for 5,000 years, when unsound money has become the problem, what's the go-to solution? It's been gold. 
What's the alternative go to solution today? It's Bitcoin. But, you know, still, I mean, how many people really, I mean, do you think we're going to go into a Bitcoin standard in 10 years if we have a monetary crisis? I don't think we're ready. I don't think it's likely to happen. And it's not what the central banks are doing. And unless all the countries fail and all the central banks fail, I think there's a very high probability that when they try and reset, if we have a monetary crisis, which you and I've discussed, we think the math suggests that we will. Then what I think happens next is we have this monetary crisis. How are we going to solve it? Well, shit, we got to reset these currencies and time the gold, right? Yeah. And 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 you can be sure that it's not at today's price. It doesn't work. You know, there's not enough gold. So I mean, people say, well, there's not enough gold to make the system work. Oh, yes, there is. You just have to have more price per ounce. Well, and the central banks are kind of already telegraphing it a little bit. Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You see them doing it. So. So to me, you know, the way this plays is monetary stuff keeps getting worse at some slope and rate. We have a blow up. I bet it happens by 2030. I'll probably be wrong. I've been wrong so much. It's ridiculous. But we have a blow up. And when we do, um, you know, they, they try and reset on gold. And it's at a much, much higher gold price. I just want to I just want to take things back and we're going to wrap it up here. But I want to take things back to earlier in the podcast when you're talking about the stock market, because I, I was just taking notes here and I wanted to agree with something that you said on the record, which was that the market, the stock market actually may have peaked for quite for quite some time here recently. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I just want to ask you, I look at the market. I know that you read what I write. I'm sorry. Yep, I read all of it. I can't yeah. believe you have brain cells left, but. You know, I write that, look, the stock market is overvalued any way that you look at it, right? So Schiller PE, S&P mean reversion, market cap to GDP, any way you want to slice and dice it, the stock market is aggressively valued right now, aggressively. And I think part of that is investor sentiment has been skewed to a degree we don't even understand over the last 15 years. And I also think the tail is wagging the dog with, you know, the magnificent seven stocks with ETFs driving stocks with options market driving the stock market, the tail wagging the dog instead of vice versa. But the market is undoubtedly not just extremely overvalued, but extremely overvalued given the circumstances. I mean, we, we, we would still need to correct below where we were prior to COVID and going, going into COVID, the discussion was we're at nosebleed valuations. So, yes. so what I want to know is what you think the catalyst will be that finally causes stocks to re-rate eventually. That, that'll be my last question. What What's going to sh- give this stock market a reality check? Will it be the bond market? Will it be something else breaking? Um, well, let me say a couple things. There's, there's some possibility that it never corrects the way you and I will think it is going to correct because it goes into a crack up boom. Okay. Okay. So let's hold that. Let's hold that out as a tail event. Recall and that. Just in explain other what hyper- that is real quick. Explain what that yeah, is. Yeah. In other hyper. Well, if, if they get to the point where we go back to ZERP again and they're printing money like crazy again, stocks actually won't be an insane thing to hold because they represent a claim on a company. I mean, if you held Mercedes-Benz or, or Siemens as a good example, in Germany in the 20s, they had hyperinflation. The, the market became worthless, right? But if you held Siemens stock before the, the, the boom or the, the, the hyperinflation, if you held it after it, you preserved your purchasing power. Mm-hmm. You still had a share of a company that, that repriced in the new currency and made money. So, you know, in a hyperinflation, what loses money? Bonds, paper money. But stocks are a long-duration asset that they represent a claim on a company that can do something. 
and the company will continue doing something after the hyperinflationary event. Now, during the event, they might be hard to trade. So the point is, the Venezuelan stock market was a great performer when they were having hyperinflation because it was a hedge against the, the Venezuelan bond market or Venezuelan currency. People were looking to buy something that they thought would have value on the other side of the hyperinflation. Same is true in Weimar. That stock market went straight up. That's what we call a crack-up boom. When it looks obvious that they're going to print to infinity and that the currency is going to become worthless, a share of a company still has some value because you own a piece of that company. Right. So so that's the case for the, that's the bull case for the stock market, crack-up boom. The bear case for the stock market, in my opinion, and what's going to trigger it is economic downturn and a wrecking. I mean, look, the bonds are the worst investment ever, like by far they're worse than the stock market. But if and when commodities start doing pretty well and inflation really continues and persists, as I think it will, you know, gold, silver, Bitcoin, oil, land, you know, anything really that's, that's you know, commodity related will be a good performer and money will come out of tech stocks and, and healthcare stocks and just regular stocks because the, the money will be saying, hey, why should, I, why should I be hanging out here in Microsoft when these gold stocks are going up 40% a year and Microsoft's revenues are flat? Do, do you know what I mean? And so, so you'll see rotation within the stock market. And then ultimately, you know, if the economy really does collapse a la the 30s, you know, you could, you know, the, the stocks, I mean, the earnings will go down and the multiples will go down. And people say, well, people would never sell their stocks. Well, yes, they will, Chris. They'll, they'll have to sell. If, if we have a Great Depression, people will have to sell their stocks to feed themselves. Right. And it'll just, and it'll, and it'll feed upon itself. And it'll be like, you know, the last one out the door, which isn't to say that they won't become massively undervalued. I mean, there were, you know, people who were buying the U.S. stock market in the 33 to 35 timeframe made unbelievable fortunes because they became too cheap. But the reason why were people selling stocks? Because nobody had any money and everyone was unemployed. And if yeah. they had any stocks, they needed to sell them to fucking They'll eat. sell everything that's not bolted down, gold and silver yeah. included. They're not, yeah, and gold and silver to some extent, but they're not selling them because they want to sell them. They're selling them because they have to sell them. Right. So, so there's a, you know, there's a real trap door underneath this market and i think you see it and i see it and i see a lot of young people who just haven't lived through these market cycles i mean right. if you entered the stock market in 2008 you've never really seen a bear market never you don't even know what you don't even know what it is you all you know is buy the dip that's it and it's worked and it's worked and it's completely and totally worked and that's why off of the 2022 dip i mean i talked to tons of my friends and i said they all own google and my, they all own the, the, the magnificent seven I said, you guys got to lighten up on that shit. Why don't you, oh, no, it's worked so great. There's no way I'm selling this stuff. It'll come back. And by the way, right now they're looking at me and saying, hey, see, I told you so. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, oh, hang on a second. Game's not entirely over yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> the, next, the next dime's about to drop. Let's see what happens. Well, I think that's a good way to end it because that's two actually cohesive, well-explained explanations for why the market could go up and the market could go down. And uh, and they they both make sense. And actually, I was going to ask you, like, what is what's a case for stocks going up? Because I don't even see one. But yes, a crack up boom, as you describe it, it makes sense that stocks would go up in, in a yeah, situation I mean, like that. If, if they go if they go back to a ZERP framework, anything you know, all bets are off. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I'll tell you the one thing that's, in my opinion, the one thing that there's absolutely no way, other than on a short term basis, if we really get into a depression, goes up or is the bond market. 
I just don't see with all the monetary chaos that's going on, I can't see how anybody is going to want to own a bond. I just can't see it. Um, and I think that's going to become more and more evident as, as this whole drama unfolds. So, yeah. All right. Well, Larry, thanks so much, man. I appreciate you taking. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, Chris, as always. It's been, it's been too long and I would encourage people to, uh, all of your information, if they're interested in contacting you, is on uh, any it's one on of my the... We- Go ahead. Yeah, it's on my website, ema2.com. You can sign up for a free newsletter. I do a little commercial. I do run a fund. Um, it's gold and silver stocks and some Bitcoin. It's 85% gold and silver, 15% Bitcoin. Um, you know, we do well when they're printing. And um, we accept investors' uh, minimum size because of the SEC is 200 k but... Um, you know, people should reach out if they have interest. All right, Larry Lapard, thanks so much, my brother. I will speak hey, thanks, to you Chris. soon. Really enjoyed yep. it. Appreciate okay, your time. Okay, take care. Bye bye. That was the one, the only Larry Lapard. It's been too long. You can also check out his most recent hedge fund letter on my blog, Fringe Finance. The link to that blog is in the podcast description. Those uh, articles are on the front page. They're called This Unprecedented Fiscal Doom Loop is Getting Worse, Fed Has No Way Out, Seven Reasons the Fed Will Print Trillions, and Monetary Debasement is Highly Likely. Folks, I want to say thanks so much for listening, and I will be back sooner as opposed to later. Hope everybody has a great Halloween. For now, I am out. Peace.